This is Labor Wave Radio. Labor Wave Radio is an independent podcast sustained by our listeners and our subscribers on Patreon. So if you enjoy our show, please become a patron. Our subscribers receive different gifts based on their membership tiers. But if you can't support us in monetary ways, you can also support us by liking and following our content on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and various social media. On this episode, we talked to Mary Beth Seitz Brown, who penned a recent article for The Forge, Organizing and Practice, titled, The Left Needs to Engage Members If We Want to Win Big. We have upcoming episodes about organizing the office, the U.S. version, and we spoke with worker organizers involved in Amazonians United Chicagoland. This and more coming up on Labor Wave. Mary Beth Seitz Brown. Welcome to Labor Wave. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you wrote an article for The Forge. I think their subtitle is what? Organizing and Strategy, but The Forge online magazine called The Left Needs to Engage Members if We Want to Win Big. And I will say from the get-go here that so much of what you talk about is exactly the experience I've had in union spaces. Mm -hmm. I think the main argument you're making is that there's often union leaders that try to ventriloquize the workers to basically justify their own positions on something. Or maybe, it seems like you're saying, to justify how they don't actually engage and have democratic structures in their union. So you want to just lay out for our listeners basically your main arguments of this piece? Yeah, I think that that is definitely the case. And I think, I mean, the way you just described it, makes it sound like people are often doing this with ill intent. And I think sometimes that is true. I also think it is often just bad organizing, not not for any malicious intent. But essentially the argument that I was trying to make in the article or the piece was that decision-making and like democratic practices in unions in particular, but also other membership organizations have to be deeply connected to organizing structures. And so we often don't actually have the most democratic decision-making because we don't have organization to tap into within our unions. So that means that people then either make sloppy decisions and just say, sure, I'm sure people will be fine with that. And then they find out their members disagree, or they will say our members would never support us making, taking a political stand on something like that. We can't even try because we're afraid of blowback. Or what I think is actually maybe the most common is we just don't push ourselves to have a more ambitious agenda because we're only thinking about where our members right now, not where could they be through organizing. And so I think that's the thing that really struck me and what inspired me to write this was that I was at the Labor for Single Payer Digital Conference. And you just hear so many people in unions say, like, my union would never go for this. (laughs) Like, we are so wedded to are really like, you know, Cadillac plan union health benefits that we've negotiated. There's no way I'm going to be able to get my fellow union members or my union leadership, or maybe they are union leadership and they think they can't get their members on board with moving to a Medicare for all system. And it's because we don't really, A, we don't know like, where are our people? What do they think actually? And B, what would they think after we had an organizing conversation where we've actually asked people's experiences about the health system 
educated them on what would a single payer system even look like, since most people don't know, and then asked them to participate in some action to help win it. And if we aren't doing those things, then we actually don't know, we can't answer the question of how our members would feel about things. So I'm basically advocating for, I mean, really we have to start to just build the organizing structures and then use those organizing structures to push ourselves to think about like, what's the actual solution that we want here? What would really build the world that we want for ourselves and for our members and for the working class? And we're going to have to move people. And I think that was the last piece of the argument is that often we think about democracy as just a snapshot in time. How do people feel right now? Instead of if people had access to all of the information and political analysis that would help them to make decisions, then how do they feel? And if we're not engaged in that process, then we've actually cut out a really significant stage of democracy. So, yeah, and I think. You know, there's so many reasons to do all of these things, but what motivates me to do all of that is um, when we build all those structures to be able to ask these questions, we're going to build better, stronger unions, and we're also going to be fighting and demanding the things that we actually want, rather than just settling for things that we think we can get in the status quo. Yeah, and that's what I liked a lot about where you landed at the end of your piece was that you're indicating we actually have a lot of possibilities here. Mm-hmm. But we have to push our memberships, we have to push our unions to the brink of their current limits to get to those possibilities. But I think, you know, like you were saying earlier, maybe I ascribe too much ill intention when it comes to like... Oh, there are definitely people. <laughs> yeah. Don't get me wrong. I've definitely encountered not so much in my current union, but just the labor movement generally and actually in other membership organizations. I have seen elected or unelected leaders and organizations who use the fact that this doesn't exist to just push through what they want. So that totally exists in many unions. Um, It's less what I was drawing on, but yeah. Right. Well, I wonder what you think about this because your argument to me, I think I'm aligned with it in that I think it requires you to have like a baseline confidence in workers, like Mm. confidence that workers can change, that maybe their politics today can develop into different politics that if they're given the resources and the information like you're talking about, if you actually challenge people on hard topics that people can move, yeah, I think it takes a lot of trust. And, you know, often like the saying amongst organizers is right, you're organizing yourself out of a job. But I yeah. don't think a lot of people actually believe that that's what they're doing, <laughs> like that they don't have the confidence in workers to actually be able to administer their own affairs. And to change politically. So what do you think about that? Do you think you have to adopt that kind of philosophical position to believe in your argument? Yeah, it's funny the way you just described it and how I've been thinking about it actually after I wrote that piece was if you view the world and subscribe to dialectical materialism, you actually have to believe these things. So like dialectical, everything is changing all the time and in relationship to other things. And materialists, like, let's look at what we actually know from evidence. What do people do when we ask them to participate in an action? And our organizing should be rooted in believing both of those things. So I believe that people can and do change all the time, that we're all in a state of constant flux, and that we just need to shift that change towards the the direction that we want to build a better world. And then I also believe that we can't know things until we've tested them. 
And so we can't know, are our members going to support single payer or Green New Deal or, you know, four day work week or whatever. Like we won't know that until we've talked to them and then not just asked for their stated support, but ask them to commit to an action. And I think our organizing totally can transform if we embed those philosophies into the work that we do. And uh, I think an organizer that I really respect, who is formerly at the Chicago Teachers Union, she was doing an organizing conversations training with some of uh, the members of my union. And I remember her foregrounding that training in people change all the time. (laughs) And I think we have to believe in that. And then on your other point of sort of our role as organizing ourselves out of a job is, yeah, I think we need to view our work as organizers and as leaders as building an army of people who have the skill to lead. We don't, we need so many more leaders than we have if we want to build sort of transformational change. And so um, we can't be proprietary about this stuff. We have to encourage and celebrate, oh my gosh, I'm not needed in that shop anymore because they're self-organizing. Great. Now I can go to some of the millions of workplaces that are unorganized and spend my time elsewhere. Like that should be the goal as we work to develop leaders who can run their own unions and run their own workplaces and run society. And then we move on to people who are not organized yet. And that's, there's, there's no shortage of work for us. (laughs) Uh, We don't need to worry about that. Yeah. There's like 90% of the workforce is not unionized. (laughs) So there's plenty. Yeah. And should be organized and is going to need dedicated, skilled organizers to help do that. So yeah, we've, we've got plenty to do. Well, kind of focusing in on this point again about that people can change and people are in flux. I like to ask the question of myself, trying to remember this for myself and stay grounded is, how did I come to these politics? How did I become an organizer? This was definitely not predetermined in my life. I thought mm-hmm. I thought I was going to be a restaurant worker for my life. Not that there's shame in that, but that's just yeah. what I thought I was going to be. So I try to think about my changes personally, and I ask the other organizers the same thing. So how did you come to the work that you're currently doing? Like what's the short story there? Well, also former restaurant worker. So cool. I I think restaurants teach you so much about the workplace in our society. They're often very hierarchical along race and gender lines, right? Like women waitresses, usually white, back of the house folks, black and brown, often undocumented. You deal with harassment as just like the nature of the job. And you have to, you know, earn tips to make a real living wage because of our legal system. So, yeah, so I was a restaurant worker and worked a bunch of jobs ever since I was 14 and uh, worked in a call center. And I think I actually, uh, when I was in college, um, while working in a call center, I was also working with a group of restaurant workers in Manhattan who were organizing against wage theft and physical abuse in their restaurant. And the college that I went to had a group called Student Worker Solidarity. And that's where I really, like, I'd always felt, you know, um, the sort of like workplace injustices, but that's where I learned how to organize. And um, we were sort of a part of a couple different campaigns, um, supporting workers in our neighborhood, but also on our campus and ended up um, learning a lot, not just about, you know, how to organize a campaign, but like, how does that also translate to political change we want to see outside of these individual work sites. So yeah, and then later on after college, I went to work for a nonprofit 
and found out that my coworkers were unionizing. I was like, wait, I'm the one being organized by this. I would totally organize you guys, (laughs) but really saw, I think in that experience, people who I had previously kind of written off as, uh, like, I don't really have that much in common with that guy, you know, where, you know, I assumed that he was sort of problematic or not as social justice as I had, as I thought he was. And when we organized, we actually had an experience where one of our coworkers was retaliated against. And it was really revealing to me to see who joined our walkout to support her. And who, who was not part of that experience, who was not part of the union, didn't stand up for her. And that taught me a lot about look at what people do, not at what they say. You can use all the right terminology, <laughs> say all the right things, but how you show up for others and how you act is really how we should judge your, your character. Yeah, I really like that. And I have similar experiences of just seeing people totally surprise me and change and become like extraordinary organizers that I didn't expect. But what you just said about testing people's actions is really important. And I liked in your piece, you have this recommendation for how to not ventriloquize workers. So the story you talk about is in a coalition meeting where people are just saying, oh, the workers' readiness is not there. Our members are not ready for this fight. Uh, Do you want to talk a little bit about how you correct that kind of knee-jerk approach to bad organizing? Let's just call it lazy organizing. (laughs) Yeah, I came up with this test, I think it was fall of last year, when I was working on a campaign, and some members were telling me, oh, like, we, we talked to people about this idea of doing this pretty confrontational action, and they really don't like it. And I was like, well, who, who, who did you talk to? And then, oh, you know, a couple people in my department, what, what are their names? Like, actually, who are you speaking about? (laughs) And that became my new, like, shorthand for this test, which is, who did you talk to? What are their names? Which is a way of just confirming, like, did we actually, are we based, I think often organizers, whether at the rank and file level or staff level or elected leaders, listen to the loudest negative voices, the people we might assess as either on the fence or opposed. And we don't actually look at what's the overall picture here. How many people did we talk to? Where do they fall after we had an organizing conversation? And are we just catering to one voice maybe out of a whole workplace? And that's what's limiting our action. Oh, well then if there's one person out of a hundred people in this shop, we don't need to stop, you know, our plan for that one person. Um, so is this test that I kind of developed for myself and for others to confirm like did we do an assessment and what is that assessment based off of and do we actually make a direct ask um so a lot of these things are just basics about organizing conversations but we often skip them because it's hard and it takes time i mean there's a little bit more to you know who did i talk to what are their names what kind of organize what kind of conversation did i have with them did i just take their temperature at a moment in time or I use this sort of metaphor in the piece, like, am I, am I engaged as a thermostat? Am I trying to turn someone's temperature from something to something else? And that's organizing is trying to move people. It's not just how does everyone feel right now? Because people are bombarded by anti-union, anti-worker messaging all the time. That's what they just get default from the world. So we have to counter that with, you know, messaging about our cause and our issue and what would solve it if we really want to know how people feel. 
100%. And I think it is so true that the loudest oppositional views come to the surface. It's hard to tease through them. Why do you, why do you think it's so difficult for, you know, maybe some leadership that are passionate about an issue to not just get totally shut down by like one really loud oppositional voice? What do you think are some good strategies? I mean, you laid some out, but also like on an emotional level, how can you just like not become bogged down by it? I think that's really important that you point into the fact that this is emotional. So much of the work that we do in organizing is going to test us emotionally and we need to have emotional regulation practices to actually have stronger political commitments in this work. So you know, the other day I got an email from a member that stressed me out and had me doubting myself and doubting uh, sort of a strategy call for a campaign. And I just had to sit with that and kind of ask myself like, okay, what am I feeling right now? And why am I feeling that way? Okay. It feels, doesn't feel good to get criticism sometimes, (laughs) or it doesn't feel good if other people are upset. But then when I sit with that and think about, well, If I want to change not just individual workplaces, but the world, we're going to have conflict. That's going to have to happen. And um, we can't shy away from that. We actually have to lean into it because it helps people to understand the nature of power and that there are sides in a lot of our fights and that we need to be honest about that. So it's actually to be expected that we're going to hear opposition and we should be prepared for it. Doesn't mean that when it happens, it's not going to have an emotional effect on us. But I think being able to like be grounded in what are the emotions that we're feeling, and then take a moment to think about what is my political, what are my values in the work that I'm trying to do. This is the goal. This is the vision I have for my union or for my organization or for the movement. And I'm. It's, it's going to mean that people are upset with me sometimes. And so I think actually just developing some of those practices on an individual, personal, emotional level can help us push through when we have these difficult conversations, because we actually probably have a much more silent, you know, we often have heard the term like movable middle, right? There's a lot of people who would be down for our cause, who may not be calling us to complain or criticize. And we want to find those people and spend our time talking to them. And those conversations feel great. (laughs) Like that feels so good when you have a connected conversation where people move and transform and just having as many of those conversations as possible outweighs the times when you have conflict. So I think having some regulation practices that you develop for yourself in those moments and then trying to counteract it with as much positive, connected, productive conversations with the people, with your base, the people that you know, you really want to work with can help. I totally agree. I mean, there's a lot of conflict avoidance mm-hmm. in labor organizing. And one thing that you were saying is that I often give advice to like member organizers about when you do something very public, when you put out something, you are going to hear the polls, like really positive supporters, really negative, you know, antagonists. And I try to steer them towards pay attention to those people that aren't saying a lot. The people that are really quiet. And often what happens is those folks just, they don't want to be very vocal about their opinion because they probably have a lot of questions mm-hmm. and they want to talk through it. So that's kind of like my advice. And I think it usually pans out. Yeah. But the conflict avoidance is extreme. 
So I did want to share in preparation for this talk, this one very specific experience I had with seeing like bad organizing practices in real time. Let's hear it. I love this. (laughs) It was a coalitional meeting like you are talking about in your piece. And it wasn't for any major thing. It was just for an annual event that this local town would put on for May Day, celebrating May Day. It was usually like a coalition of progressive groups, nonprofits, and labor unions that would put it on every year. And they're in like their 10th year of doing it now. One of the years that they were organizing this event, they had a pretty open policy about who could pitch in, who could have like a tent on the day um, and advertise their group. This right-wing militia group decided that they wanted to participate. Mm. And the majority of organizers were like, no way. Like this is completely antithetical to the values of this. So that was the immediate position. One of the labor groups that was participating in the coalition in real time in like a 30 minute meeting just said outright, like we're pulling out, like we can't even have a statement on issues of the second amendment or guns or whatever. And they said right off the bat, our members are very pro gun and they, we can't be seen to be like not allowing this group, you know, to participate. Whether or not that was true and whatever the positions on it, it was what I saw was two people from an organization that represented 2000 made this decision completely in the dark, completely in the shadows, without any consultation, with just guessing what their members actually think. And maybe their members were pro-gun, but not pro-right-wing militias that want to bring Uzis to a fucking public park, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, who knows? So they didn't talk about it at all. Now, what you point to is that probably, and I think this is true of this group too, there were no organizing structures that already pre-existed for them to have those conversations. So you make this very like clear argument that how you organize day to day, even when there's maybe not a lot happening, leads to the type of democracy in your labor union. Do you, do you want to elaborate more on that? Yeah, well, that's the exact kind of scene that I was referencing where you have to sort of sarcastically sort of not ask, all right, can I see your list of members you talk to? <laughs> right. Where are your assessments, you know? Well, in this case, it would have been impossible because the information came out in the meeting that this happened. Yeah. And, you know, I that's part of why I'm sarcastic. I know things happen and like we can't always instantly tap into an organizing structure um, to make decisions. And sometimes leaders do have to make a call based on the data that they have available to them. Uh, I think my argument is you get so much more data readily available if you build organizing structures that then you can use to generate sort of your assessments on these things. But yeah, I think day-to-day organizing practices that none of this is going to be rocket science. If you're an organizer, this is all stuff you've heard before, but we, including myself, are often not practicing all of these things 100% of the time are like, okay, what what's my organization? Who's in it? And do I have a list? Does every single person in that organization have an accounted for leader that is responsible or an organizer who's responsible for reaching out to them? When's the last time we talked to them? <laughs> and, you know, when's the last time we've engaged a member in a campaign? So um, in the union context, you know, there are a lot of unions that go years or decades without engaging their members in a contract campaign around negotiations. And what happens if you have people who are not ever engaged in campaigns is we actually don't know, we have no data to test any hypotheses 
um, because we haven't ever tried to move people. So something that you learn very quickly when you're an organizer is not everything works <laughs> and we're going to have to try different things. So something that moves one person in one conversation is not going to move another. But how will you ever find out what are the issues that resonate with this group? Who are the best leaders to talk to that department? What are the best tactics that are going to lead us to win that will generate hope and optimism and energy to keep fighting? Like, how do you know any of that information unless you're engaged in a campaign? So I think a really basic place to start with most unions is organize around your contracts, like organize around grievances. This is why I so appreciate the work of labor notes and folks in that community is that's a great place to start to just get to learn a lot of this stuff. And that work is also democratic work, right? I think sometimes we think of who voted in the union election. Did you vote to ratify the contract? You know, are people electing their stewards? Like that to me is just a very limited set of data about democratic practices. And I mentioned in the piece, this person who I really respect and have drawn on for a lot of the topics about democracy is Marta Harnicker, who writes about, you know, the goal of 21st century socialism as being developing human potential and human capacity. And that democracy is also about doing that. And we can't develop people's capacity to lead and grow and win unless we are putting them into some kind of struggle or some kind of campaign. Yeah, I think when we think about the day-to-day democratic practices of our organizations, one of the first questions we have to ask is, what's our fight? (laughs) What fight are we in right now? Or what fight are we preparing for um, so that we can do all of that work of developing people? And not look at democracy as simply a passive action of like voting occasionally Mm -hmm. in a union election. I think it also can reveal how much democratic practice you have in your organization by how many elections are contested. Mm-hmm. You know, do you actually have anybody running against your incumbent president at your local union ever? Mm-hmm. Have you had it for 20 years? Uh, if not, there's probably something going on there that uh, shows the lack of engagement. Absolutely. And that's kind of conflict too, right? And in terms of the uh, conflict avoidance we were talking about earlier, sometimes people fear contested elections because it shows division within the union. But there's already division in our unions, so we might as well talk about it and organize around it. And yeah, I think elections can be a really good opportunity to say there's different ways of approaching this. There are different models and doesn't always fall so cleanly on an organizing model or servicing model basis when people are running for union office. But it does generate an opportunity to talk about there's multiple ways to approach this work and which one do we want? Now, in your piece, you use the examples of the Chicago Teachers Union and the UTLA. What does their acronym stand for? United Teachers of Los Angeles? Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. Mm-hmm. I can usually get United. If there's a U, it's usually Union or United. Yeah. As two case studies of democracy and practice, like you're talking about, you use the expression governing by obedience. Mm-hmm. Obeying. Governing by obeying. Yeah. I've heard it also as leading by obedience. But those are two examples that you point to as like, this is a good opportunity to like learn some lessons. So what are the lessons from those two examples that you think people should know about or think about more? I can't wait for the day when there are more examples to point to, because I feel like if you're in this world, we're always talking about CTU and UTLA. (laughs) Um, And many people have talked about them before, but I think some of the key lessons are this work takes time and we have to build to it over 
often multiple stages. So in both the UTLA example and CTU example, there's years of building before, and often the first step was actually just taking over the union and reforming the union leadership. And then from there, from that place of more supportive, organizing-minded leadership, developing the structures um, within the membership to be able to have this kind of democratic practice and organizing structures. And then from there, doing political education work to talk about, let's expand the set of topics on the table right now. Let's talk about not just wages and retirement and healthcare, but what are all of the issues that are affecting you as a worker and also your students and your community? And let's not limit ourselves. You know, a lot of um, folks in the labor movement who are from the sort of business unionism service model, you often hear, eh, we can't get that. Eh, We're not allowed to do that. Uh, Really following into sort of doing management's job for them (laughs) and claiming their prerogatives and we can also claim our own. And so I think in both of those examples, you had leadership that was willing to say, we can expand the set of issues and then also expand kind of our base. So both um, unions really invested time and energy into building relationships with parents and community members and also community organizations, you know, in other movements, you know, in Chicago, uh, racial justice organizations were also part of the conversations that were leading to the contract prep. So, yeah, I think that's a key lesson for all of us is if we want to be able to have those ambitious wins or demands that we also kind of have to start with the 101. <laughs> so, you know, clean house, get a reform slate, um, reform leadership build these structures. And then with those structures, we can actually have the kind of conversations we're going to need to have if we want to push the envelope and broaden our our issues platforms to things like bargaining for the common good type demands. Well, I want to bring us to a conclusion here. And off of what you were just saying, the idea that the union isn't allowed to do this or that thing or that we have to expand the kind of demands that we're willing to issue I think a lot of this really does come down to like political imagination. And one of the key arguments I make throughout my my life in labor organizing is that I think the political imagination of unions is very narrowed. Mm-hmm. Not that it's like shallow imagination, but it's full of imagination that believes in only one type of unionism. And that's the unionism that's like sanctioned by the state, right? The NLRB governs everything, got to stay within those strict parameters. So I think that that's a key fault line in what we're up against. And I think your arguments for how to engage members and develop and broaden, you know, the political imagination is really important. What do you think are kind of the biggest, meatiest political debates right now in organized labor? And I just want to hear your thoughts about that. And also, if you have any thoughts about my claim that the political imagination is a big part of the problem here, I'd like to hear it. I agree. I think this is not specific to unions, but definitely applies to unions that our imagination is often very limited. Uh, And I think we often don't make space to just ask these questions of, okay, outside of this contract, like what are we trying to do in our industry? Why are we building power? (laughs) Mm -hmm. To what end? Maybe that'll be the follow-up to who did you talk to? What are their names? Is to what end? Like, why are we doing this? It's something that I've found when recruiting shop stewards or new leaders within my union that 
it's helpful to be able to connect with people. Like why do all this? Why have the one to 10 structure? You know, why get involved in a contract fight is being able to connect, not just to the issues that affect people in their immediate workplace, but what kind of world do you want to build? And thinking about how the labor movement's role used to be to raise standards in industries, right? Like I think now we're, we've gotten so used to hold on to what we have for dear life, or at least try to manage the decline of our industry and try to fend off as many concessions as possible. So if we're going to try to be as strong as the labor movement was in the 30s, for example, we need to start thinking in each industry, what's, what's that standard? You know, what are the, the workplace issues that are not unique to any one individual shop that we could organize across workplaces, across unions, to be able to build more power and um, for on bigger demands. So I can't say really what is the single political issue for all of labor. I think it's something that hopefully organizers, both in staff and in the rank and file and leaders are thinking about in my industry, what, am, what are we seeing that's affecting workers across all of our shops where we actually need to band together and fight it as one unit? And um, that's going to look different in, you know, warehousing and manufacturing than it looks in education and healthcare. Um, so I mostly organize journalists. And, you know, one issue that we've organized around a lot in my union has been Just Cause. A lot of uh, the employers that we're up against have tried to basically carve out a huge exception to that. And it wasn't until we organized across eight shops um, and had a really big digital picket at the New Yorker that we saw employers finally stop to drop all of these huge exceptions they were introducing. So we had to think beyond an individual workplace, notice a pattern, bring people together to fight on coordinated demands on a coordinated campaign. And then after that, we've sort of been talking about, all right, we won, but that was just to hold on to just cause. So like, let's not just be protecting what we have. We want to advance new standards. And so that can look like better diversity language around recruiting and retaining folks from underrepresented backgrounds in newsrooms. It's also looked like banning the use of non-disclosure agreements around harassment or discrimination. Like, I think there's a lot you know, even those are still pretty local level issues. And I think the next frontier I'm really excited about, but I think it's something that all of us need to ask in our unions, find other people who are asking those questions and talk about it. Like, what do we think the fight is that we could take on together that would start to push this envelope? Once we can develop that muscle, I think it will only continue to increase in scope and um, hopefully encourage all of us to work as a class, as a working class, not just within our own unions. Well, with that, I really want to thank you for your time and having this conversation. It's really great. It was so fun. Yeah, I had fun too. I hope that we can have you again sometime. Absolutely. Thanks so much.
that I don't know will go with